In July 1994, astronomers were treated to a spectacle in the skies, a cosmic demolition derby. 20 chunks of a shattered comet named Shoemaker-Levy 9 smashed into the planet Jupiter. Massive hunks of ice and rock hit the Jovian atmosphere at 134,000 miles per hour. It was a deep impact. When fragment G hit, the planet released a fireball, a gaseous plume 5,000 miles wide by 1,600 miles high. The force of the explosion was the equivalent to 6 million megatons of TNT. That's 100,000 times the power of the largest nuclear bomb ever detonated on planet Earth. Glenn Orton, an astronomer at the California Jet Propulsion Laboratory, made the comment, it was like God striking the planet. I'm sure it was. Of course, the fireworks on Jupiter stirred speculation. Could this happen on our planet? Could similar cosmic debris smash into the earth? And the answer is a definite yes. In fact, not only can it, phenomena like this occurs every day. The earth gets a daily sprinkling of over 20 tons of cosmic rock. Most of the 20 tons is space dust, the size of a grain of sand. But scientists also have evidence of larger strikes. Geologists have documented 140 craters around the globe that are the result of incoming asteroids or comets or meteors. In 1908, a comet exploded in a remote region of Siberia. In 1993, a tractor trailer-sized asteroid passed within 90,000 miles of the earth. That's less than half the distance between the earth and the moon. A close call, according to astronomical standards. Currently, NASA is tracking as many as 4,000 NEOs, or near-earth objects, as they're called. These objects are streaking through space. They could strike the earth with little or no notice. Donald Yeomans, an astronomer at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, made this statement. Space is filled with objects that threaten Earth. Earth runs its course around the sun in a swarm of asteroids. Sooner or later, our planet will be struck by one of them. Even now, it's as if God keeps firing warning shots across the bow of our ship to encourage us to repent. Several years ago, a National Geographic special referred to these projectiles in biblical terms. It caught my attention when they said it, but they called them mountains tumbling through space. It reminded me of John in Revelation. You know, it may surprise you, but the Bible predicts that one day God will judge the earth by striking this perverse planet with an extraterrestrial mountain. Revelation 8 describes the fireworks that will one day be a reality. John sounds like NASA when he writes, Something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died. And a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch. And the name of the star is Wormwood, that is bitterness. Bitterness. 
and a third of the waters became bitter, and many men died from the water. And I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth. As Glenn Orton would have put it, it was like God striking the planet. Here's what no one today wants to admit. God sees mankind's sin and rebellion. God sees our blatant disregard for his word. God sees mankind's snotty arrogance. God sees our militant secularism. God sees our shameless perversions. And trust me, God won't sit silent forever. God will see to it that a day of reckoning is on the horizon. It is almost high noon at the OK Corral. God is going to shake the pillars of this universe to get our attention. He will bring the arrogant planet to its knees. Years ago, I read where Ladbrokes, a London bookmaker, was giving 40 to 1 odds that an alien will visit our planet in the near future. At the time, if a visitor had dropped in, it would have cost Ladbrokes over a half a million dollars. They'd taken a lot of bets. But the truth of the matter is that one day they'll be forced to pay up because the earth is going to get invaded by an extraterrestrial visitor. And his name is Jesus Christ. There are more biblical passages that promise Jesus' second coming than his first. Someone counted 2,163 references. Currently, we live in an age when mankind is getting his way, when man is having his say. Today is called the day of man. Mankind rules the roost. Yet the Bible teaches that the sun is going to set on the day of man and that a new day will dawn on this earth, a time when God will have his say, when God will insist on his way in the affairs of men. God is going to shut up the opinions of men. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, is coming back to clean house. Our Lord will judge evildoers. He'll right all wrongs. He'll return to establish his kingdom. In our text, Paul refers to this period of time as the day of the Lord. Reminds me of my dad. Whenever my dad taught boys fifth grade Sunday school, he had an interesting way of easing into his lesson. Before he began, he would open the floor. He'd say, okay, boys, anybody can say anything they'd like. You can talk about any subject that you want to talk about. Of course, when given the opportunity to speak, everybody just sat there silent looking at each other, you know. After a while, Dad would then open up his Bible and he'd say, all right, then. I've given you boys a chance to talk, and I've sat here respectfully and listened to you. Now it's your turn to give me a chance to talk, and I expect you to sit here respectfully and listen to me. It was a great way to begin his lesson. And this is what God is going to say at the end of the age. I've given you your turn. Now it's mine. Today, God is sitting back listening to mankind's foolishness and blasphemy. But the day is coming when it's God's turn 
Trust me, God will get the last word. Paul begins in verse 1. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say, peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. Now realize, when we talk about the day of the Lord, we're not necessarily speaking of a 24-hour period. In history class, the professor might say, the day of Rome's republic, or the day of space exploration. Rome was a republic for 500 years, not just for 24 hours. The term day can speak of an indefinite time. The bookends for the day of the Lord are the rapture of the church at its beginning and the new heaven and new earth as its grand finale. And in between, there's a whole smorgasbord of events. There's the marriage supper of the Lamb and the rise of the Antichrist and the seven years of great tribulation and the battle of Armageddon. And the coming of Christ in glory and great power. The salvation of Israel. The judgment of the nations. The millennial reign of Christ. The battle of Magog. A universal inferno. And of course the great white throne of judgment. The proceedings included in the day of the Lord cover a time frame of little more than a thousand years. Here in 1 Thessalonians Paul is concerned about the onset of these events. He wants the church to be ready for the miracle he describes at the end of chapter 4. We call it the rapture. Jesus will return in the twinkling of an eye to snatch up his church, and he wants us living our lives in anticipation of Jesus's return. Over the years, I've been pretty critical of what I would call date setters people who claim to know more than God, you know, when the rapture will take place. But this week, God revealed to me the exact time of the rapture. That's right. I I had this special revelation this past week. And so here it is. I know for a fact that Jesus is going to return to this earth at precisely 2 a.m., That's right. Somewhere on earth, it's going to be 2 a.m. when Jesus comes back. (laughs) Actually, no one knows the exact moment of the rapture. In Mark chapter 13, Jesus himself declares, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. No one knows the exact day or the specific hour But Paul does tell us that we should know the times and the seasons. I'll never forget the Sunday morning that my wife, Kathy, gave birth to our first son. Kathy was nine months pregnant. She was great with, I mean, great with child. I mean, she looked like a hot air balloon in the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. (laughs) My skinny little wife was so inflated that I had to hold her down with ropes to keep her from flying off. 
it was obvious that she was having a baby. And sooner rather than later, you could tell by looking at her. But that Sunday morning, her water broke. And my, oh my, it was a surprise to us both. Now, we were sure the day was coming. One look at this woman, you knew the day was coming soon. I mean, she even had her bag packed for weeks prior. But when the moment arrived, it shocked us both. And here's how Paul tells us the day of the Lord begins. As a labor pain upon a pregnant woman. Oh, you know it's on the horizon. You can tell the times and the seasons. But when it actually occurs, it's a stunner. You see, the Bible is full of signposts that indicate that we are fastly approaching the end of the age. For starters, consider the rebirth of the nation Israel, a people in exile that hadn't existed as a nation for 1,900 years has suddenly been reborn in our generation. A desert has blossomed overnight. Their language, which was once dead, has risen from the ashes. It's all unprecedented in the annals of human history. And God predicted it all in advance. Modern Israel is proof of God's faithfulness. Reminds me of the pagan king of Prussia. One day he asked the devoted Christian, Count Zinzendorf, he said, can you prove to me your faith? Zinzendorf replied with two words, the Jew. But we could go on and on noting signs. The Zionist movement to relocate Jews to Israel, plans to rebuild a Jewish temple, the Israeli-Arab peace efforts, the reunification of Europe, unrest with Persia, a.k.a. Iran, momentum toward the global government and a one-world economy, a preponderance of earthquakes and disease and famine and natural disasters, not to mention a proliferation of knowledge and technology and travel around the world. I could take you to chapter and verse this morning and show you the Bible's prophecies. And these are just a few of the phenomena that signal the end of time. Canvas today's news and you'll recognize the times and the seasons are upon us. Besides, If Jesus doesn't return soon, God's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. For the world that we live in is growing more and more perverse by the second. If God doesn't intervene soon, we're going to annihilate ourselves. The world is so pregnant with judgment that it's about to pop. And according to Paul, when the day of the Lord begins, it comes like a new mom's initial contractions. It starts suddenly. Jesus descends in the clouds to snatch away his church. Even though we know he's coming, it's still a surprise when it happens. The day comes as a thief in the night. The rapture happens unexpectedly. A burglar doesn't make an appointment with his victim. He doesn't send out a notice a few days before the heist. He waits until you least expect him, and then he strikes This is why you and I need to be rapture watchers. We see the end time scenarios like a storm brewing and forming off in the distance, but the first thunderclap is the rapture of the church. God wants us to be ready. 
But notice what follows. As believers go up, judgment comes down. Read verse 2. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them. Friends, this world is barreling toward judgment. Notice a pseudo-peace will precede this sudden destruction. In other words, before the ink dries on the paper, peace treaties will be broken and Israel will be attacked. On September 29, 1938, Great Britain signed a treaty with Germany. Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain agreed to let Adolf Hitler take a slice of the land from his neighbor, Czechoslovakia. In exchange, Hitler promised no more aggression. The British press held the agreement as peace for our time. But the Brits were seriously duped. Six months later, Hitler had taken all of Czechoslovakia. In less than a year, the Nazis were marching on Poland. And one day, Israel will make similar mis- a similar mistake. They'll be charmed by the promise of shalom or peace. For another dynamic leader, much like Hitler... The Bible calls him the Antichrist, will smooth talk the Jews to the peace table. But their partner in peace has evil motives. They'll enter into a sinister shalom. And the Bible has much to say about this future peace treaty. Isaiah 28 verse 18 calls it a covenant with death and your agreement with hell. Daniel speaks of a future leader who will rise up against God. Daniel 8 verse 25 tells us, through his cunning, he shall cause deceit to prosper. Daniel 9 27 even pinpoints this peace treaty's place on the timeline. Notice Paul warns, when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction. Acts 17 verse 30 speaks of God's current patience. You know, God is very patient today. Paul says, these times of ignorance God overlooked. Can you imagine all that God is overlooking today? Today, God winks at sin, not because he approves of what he sees or is afraid to judge sinners, but it just isn't time yet. You see, Daniel 9 tells us that God has set aside a future seven-year period to judge this rebellious planet. He has reserved the harshest judgments for the end of the age. The Bible even has a name for this period of human history. It refers to it as the Great Tribulation. Today, the world persecutes the church. But in that day, God himself will persecute this wicked world. He's going to take this world to the woodshed. Terrible, fearful judgments will strike this planet that'll make natural disasters like the Chernobyl meltdown or the Japan tsunami or the Haitian earthquake or even the Katrina hurricane look like child's play. At the moment, man is riding his high horse, but he's going to get shot down. God is going to soon intervene. Revelation teaches us that the title deed to the earth is sealed with seven seals. And when Jesus takes possession of it, he's going to pop those seals and serious judgments will be unleashed. Seven trumpets will add additional punishments. Then seven bowls will pour out still more. 
People will run for cover. They'll try to commit suicide to escape, but God won't allow it. Expect a full-scale assault on sinners. Hey, God is going to knock man off his high horse, and our Lord Jesus is going to return on a white horse. This is no metaphor. This is no symbolism. This is not some kind of sci-fi fiction. This is the Bible's prophetic forecast for the future seven years on planet Earth. It's called great tribulation for a reason. The day of the Lord begins with the rapture. Jesus comes as a thief in the night unexpectedly for his church. That's when the world gets lulled by this fake peace. Everyone starts to think, oh, happy days are here again. Boy, good riddance to those Christians. But when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction. Daniel 9 verse 27 gives us the mark on the timeline for the great tribulation. The final seven years begin when Israel signs this peace treaty, this sinister shalom. Halfway through the seven years, Israel's treaty gets broken. God takes vengeance on a world who's betrayed his people. God ramps up his judgments. Then finally, Jesus returns to rescue his people, Israel, and establish his long-awaited kingdom on the earth. Now, before we go further, let me clear up some possible confusion. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Jesus returns before the sudden destruction in the clouds to snatch away his church to heaven and deliver us from his wrath. But there are other Bible passages that teach that Jesus will return at the end of these judgments to rescue the Jews, to punish his enemies, and to establish his kingdom on the earth. In fact, Jesus will reign a thousand years. That means that there are actually two returns of Jesus Christ. One is before the destruction. He comes in the clouds for the church. The world will struggle for an explanation. But the other is after the destruction. He comes to the earth to rescue Israel, and the world recognizes it's Jesus. One is the rapture. The other is his second coming. And the two events have to be separated they can't occur together. They contradict each other. Of course, there are some folks who see only one second coming. They believe Jesus will rapture his church and rebuild his kingdom at the same time. They believe the church will have to endure God's fierce judgments, but not so. This is not what Paul teaches us throughout 1 Thessalonians. In chapter 1, verse 10, he commends the believers for turning from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Notice we aren't destined for God's wrath. Rather, we are delivered from God's wrath. That's God's promise. At the moment, the Thessalonians were taking it on the chin from the world around them. But when Jesus returns, he'll deliver them from the wrath to come. Certainly, God uses tribulation in our discipleship. It's the opposition we encounter from this world that builds endurance and purifies our faith. 
Yes, we're subject to the world's animosity, but that is a far cry from being subject to God's animosity on this world. As Lot was escorted out of Sodom before the city was destroyed, the church will be escorted out of this world before God pours out his wrath on this rebellious planet. Paul says it again here in chapter 5, verse 9, God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you know Jesus, great tribulation is not in your future. We are saved from wrath to salvation. And this idea is not only taught in 1 Thessalonians, but elsewhere in Scripture. In Revelation 3, verse 10, Jesus promises the faithful church, because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. They're kept from the global tribulation that's to come. In contrast, Jesus says to the unfaithful church, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. Her punishment is the great tribulation, but implied is that the church of Jesus Christ was not intended for God's end-of-the-age judgments. In fact, there is an obscure verse It's a prophecy, Isaiah 26, that I believe is an invitation to the church to be ready for the rapture. Isaiah writes, come my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourself as it were for a little moment until the indignation is past. For behold, the Lord comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The Lord will come out of his place to punish this world. But before he does, he takes his people into their hiding place. The beauty of our salvation is that it's multifaceted. We're saved from sin, from the law, from guilt, from judgment, from condemnation, from the world, from hell, but also from the wrath to come. Hallelujah. Notice, too, the last line here in chapter 5, verse 3. They shall not escape. Folks who are duped into accepting the false peace and who suffer sudden destruction shall not escape. But Paul's implication is that some will. That's why he's writing to the Thessalonians. God provides his church a great escape. That's why they need to discern the seasons and stay rapture ready. We need to listen for the shout, the trumpet. We need to watch for Jesus. For the next prophetic event to take place is the rapture of the church. Nothing else needs to happen before Jesus calls us home. It is the next benchmark on the timeline. The day of the Lord begins with the rapture. One of the great themes of the Bible is the doctrine of imminency. Jesus Christ's return for the church is imminent. In essence, it can happen at any moment. This is why I believe in a pre-tribulational rapture of the church. For if the rapture doesn't occur before the great tribulation, then it can't be imminent. If it's at the end of the tribulation, then we can count all seven years. We can chart it out to the very day. 
That's why I'm not on the lookout for judgment. I'm looking for Jesus. And this is why Paul stirs us up in verse 4. He says, but you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. A believer in Jesus isn't in the dark. This means that when you become a Christian, it introduces you to certain truths about God. The instant I'm saved, I'm ushered into his marvelous light. I wake up to the day. I learned that Jesus is all about salvation. Grace is all about escaping wrath. Faith is all about not being overtaken. We should know better than to think that we're destined for judgment. Jesus is all about deliverance. Paul continues, For we are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. Earlier in 1 Thessalonians, Paul talked about believers who had died. Their soul was alive with Jesus, but their body was asleep in the grave. The word sleep implied a peaceful state. But the term sleep in verse 6 is a different word. It means a deadening of the senses. The dictionary definition reads, to yield to sloth and sin, to be indifferent to your salvation. And some people are slumbering their lives away. They don't care about eternal realities. You know, the word sleep implies three traits. Insensitivity. When you're asleep, you're insensitive. When you're asleep, you're inactive. And when you're asleep, you're in danger. And the same holds true spiritually. When you're spiritually asleep, you're asleep to God and his word. You're insensitive. You're inactive. You have no desire to serve the Lord. And you're in danger. For a man asleep is defenseless, defenseless and vulnerable to spiritual attacks. And some of us have dozed off spiritually. This morning, I want to shake you up. I want to wake you up. I hope this Bible study is a cup of strong coffee. Once it was a little boy, he went to say his bedtime prayers, and he got kind of tongue-tied. Rather than his normal prayer, if I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. He prayed, if I should wake before I die. But that's what we all should be praying for some of our friends and some of our family members. That spiritually speaking, they wake up before they die and their life on earth is over. Oh, it's easy to discuss the end of the age and God's final judgments when we do it in the abstract. But when we put a face on it, Uncle Bob or the neighbor next, Jim next door or Cousin Karen, it becomes a whole different story, doesn't it? Understand at the end of the age, everyone alive at the time who doesn't know Jesus will become subject to these judgments. Those of us who are sober need to love our friends enough to wake them up before their time is up. <coughs> Years ago, I had a bad case of indigestion one day. I mistook it for chest pains. You know, you get 50 years old, you start thinking about that. It concerned me, so I decided to play it safe. I went to see the doctor. I suppose this doctor went to college, probably had some 
graduate school work, maybe medical school, I don't know. But I'll never forget what the guy told me. He said, well, it's a good thing you came in today for a lot of people ignore the warning signs, just go to bed and in the morning they wake up dead. (laughs) No joke, this educated man told me they wake up dead. I immediately asked him to see his diploma. No, I didn't. I didn't really do that. But if this doctor, he must have been speaking spiritually, for in that sense, everyone will wake up after they're dead. In the afterlife, every single person will be fully aware. We'll all clearly see God's truth in our need for Jesus. But at that point, it'll be too late. The idea Paul is stressing is to wake up before you die, not afterwards. Verse 7 tells us, for those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. Lots of bad stuff happens at night. If I said it once to my teenagers, I said it a thousand times. Nothing good happens after midnight. That was kind of the motto at my house. Matter of fact, that's why midnight was their curfew. Only shenanigans happen after midnight. And the statistics bear this out, by the way. Did you know that 62% of sex crimes, 71% of car thefts happen at night? I mean, evil people like to operate under the cover of darkness. And the same is true spiritually. If there's sin in your heart, you're going to run from God's light. And God's truth. You'll avoid church. You'll avoid fellowship with other believers every chance you get. Any excuse to miss becomes a good excuse. You'll do all you can to stay as far from God as possible. Paul says, but let us who are of the day be sober. I'm thinking of the guy who gets drunk one night. He's suffering this major league hangover. It's past noon, and he's still in bed. We've got the curtains closed. And all of a sudden, Paul bursts into the room, throws open the curtains, lets the daylight pour into every inch of the room. He starts shaking his friend, sets up the IV coffee drip. (laughs) Paul is sobering up his friend. And this is what he wants to do with us. Have you been wasting your time drunk on sin or asleep to God? It's time to wake up and get up and wise up and look up. You need to join the day, friend, and live in light of God's word. Your life will be better off if you live it sober. And once Paul gets his bud off the bud and out of the bed, then he kind of dresses him and gets him ready. Paul says he has some proper attire for his heart and for his head. He tells us, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Both a breastplate for the heart and a helmet for the head. The breastplate of faith and love protects our hearts. You know, a police officer doesn't go into a dangerous situation without his bulletproof vest. And neither should a Christian go anywhere without faith and love draped across his heart. You know, the heart is the seat of our desires. If you really desire a thing, you'll say, I want it with all my heart. That's why we should be careful with what we want, with what we value, with what we deem is important. 
Jesus said, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Understand the heart is a follower. People talk about following their heart. They got it backwards. You don't follow your heart. We desire and we follow whatever it is we value. Your heart follows what it considers to be its treasure. Following your heart is letting the tail wag the dog. Faith and love decides the direction of your heart. What you believe in and therefore what you value shapes your desires. People who say, I just follow my heart really don't. Their heart follows what they believe and what they love. This is why we need to wake up and sober up. We need to decide that God's word is true, that his ways should be pursued. What do you really believe? Who do you truly love? Then get your heart in line. Cover your heart with faith and love. And then Paul says, use a helmet, the hope of salvation. Make sure your mind continually thinks salvation thoughts. I'll never forget being challenged by a quote I heard used in reference to C.S. Lewis. Someone described C.S. Lewis as the most thoroughly converted man he had ever met. I read that and thought, that's what I want to be. I want to be thoroughly Christian. I want to see myself in Christ. I want to see you in Christ. I want to view all of life from God's perspective. I want biblical attitudes and habits. I need to believe I can change. I need a case of salvation on the brain. That's what I need. One year, my son, Zach, he was the catcher on his baseball team, and they had just come out with those new hockey-style catcher's masks. Probably seen them. Well, at the time, they were the latest. They were the greatest equipment. And I'll never forget going to the store to get one for his Christmas gift. It was 189 bucks. I said, no way. I decided he, that old catcher's mask would be just fine for Zach. <laughs> but I'm afraid that's the choice too many Christians make uh, about the helmet of salvation. Rather than take on new thoughts, rather than let their salvation color their thinking, they just continue in the old ruts. A new helmet is too much trouble. I'm sure you heard the definition of insanity. Insanity is expecting the same thing done the same way to yield a different result. That's why you need a new mindset. You need to change your approach. And here's the good news. Even though spiritually, our spiritual head protection is expensive, it's free to us. For the helmet of the hope of salvation was purchased by the blood of Jesus. Salvation and all its ramifications are free, but we got to strap it on. A catcher would never think of entering the game without his catcher's mask. And you and I will never be victorious Christians without a new mindset. Are we learning to think of ourselves and others and life from God's perspective? We should be. We need to strap on the helmet of salvation. In verse 9, for God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, 
we should live together with him. And how hopeful is this? Whether these bodies of ours wake or sleep, in essence, whether we're dead or alive, we'll live forever with Jesus. No matter the situation we face, this is our destiny on earth or in heaven to fellowship with our Lord Jesus. Verse 11 is a fitting conclusion. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another just as you also are doing. Life can be tough. Some of you this morning are bearing heavy burdens. But the tribulation you've endured is nothing compared to what you one day, what one day will come upon this planet. Jesus is planning a surprise return. He's coming for his church. We need to be rapture ready. Be alert, be awake, be sober. Your destiny is to live forever with Jesus. And you can start fulfilling that destiny even today.